Hello class and welcome to another episode of the TM288 Historical Theology 2 podcast. How's your week going? Hope everything's going well. Love to hear from you, especially if you've not been a part of the Zoom conferences. Uh, Send me a little message, let me know how life's going or if there are any ways I can be praying for you. I've tried to pray for students more in the midst of this transition and all the crazy times. As for my life, we're in the middle of potty training a two-year-old, so I'll just leave it at that for now. Today we are looking at Lesson 6.3, continuing our survey of the uh, history of global Christianity. Today we'll be talking about Christianity in Latin America, though as with other lessons, I am here trying to limit the scope a little bit as well. And in this instance, we'll primarily be looking at the history of colonization of European countries into the Americas some of their atrocities, and some of the things that we can learn from their mistakes. So, recall from previous lectures that in the 1400s, the Roman Catholic Pope had issued bulls that gave control of mission and conquest of non-European territories to the two Catholic powerful kingdoms of Spain and Portugal. Spain was given dominion of the newly discovered Americas. And the Spanish government instituted what's known as the encomienda system, which gave hereditary rights to the descendants of those who first claimed uh, territorial control. These rights were not only given over the land, but over the inhabitants of the land, who were often placed into forced labor and slavery. Similar rights were given to control of the natural resources available in the Americas. This colonial system was largely buttressed by certain theological beliefs. One particularly important one was that of millenarianism, the idea that Christ was about to return and issue in a 1,000-year reign of justice, drawing there on the typical uh, terminology of Revelation chapter 21. Because many Catholics believe they were living in the end times, And interestingly, they categorized Luther as the Antichrist. Because they believed they were living in the end times, they felt an urgent need to spread the faith. However, because of the union of church and state, some would argue, all the way back with the Roman Emperor Constantine, Catholic Christians often viewed Catholic nations as having a particular obligation due to Christ's imminent return to defeat empires of darkness and evil before the Lord came back to issue in his political reign on this earth. So very few Catholic theologians of this time were asking questions about a sustainable long-term balance with other religions and other cultures. Rather, they were concerned with bringing in the largest number of converts as quickly as possible, while destroying as thoroughly as possible the cultures and governments and civilizations of the native populations that they encountered. The Council of Trent was the main Catholic effort at reform during this era. Recall that it targeted moral failings, but did very little in the terms of doctrinal reform. Sure, the Via Moderna was rejected as an appropriate theology, as were a number of principles of Protestant thought. However, by and large, traditional Catholic beliefs were not criticized, but were rather enforced and at times amplified. What's interesting, though, is that among the moral failings that Trent considered, Trent did not address any questions about the colonies, 
because thanks to the bulls in the 1400s, the popes had given up control over these territories to kingdoms, and therefore were under the impression that the kingdoms themselves must address whatever moral issues arrive in that context. In this case, then, we see a lack of concern for larger moral questions in the world if they did not directly pertain to the institutional structure of the church. Of course, Protestants were not raising these questions because Protestant nations, by and large, lacked colonies and, by and large, were not engaged in missionary efforts outside of local regions in Europe during the 1500s and 1600s. So millenarianism led to a uh, diminished emphasis on sustainable justice. Trent prevented the institutional church from weighing in significantly on ethical issues in the colonial era, and the Catholic Church as a whole was taking a drift toward more forceful implementation of Christian beliefs with the use of the Inquisition during the Reformation, where at times even torture was used in defense of orthodoxy. So that's the historical context. What does this actually look like on the ground? How are missions done? If you're following along on PowerPoint 6.3, you'll see an image on slide five of a very old building. This is known as a Jesuit reduction. Reductions were forced settlements of native populations in an effort to have them cohabitate with Spanish settlers. And this is one reason why the spread of disease in the so-called New World was so bad and native populations face such drastic declines in their population numbers. Because of forced cohabitation, transmission of disease was far more significant. Actually, a similar logic in mind here with the current government efforts to enforce social distancing. Now, often the focus of these reductions, besides cultural transformation, was forced mining. Conquistadors viewed enforced mining as a means of recouping war costs so all the expenses that Spanish military forces had incurred in defeating local populations would then be corrected by enslaving locals to mine out precious jewels and minerals which could be transported back to Europe and sold, or kept as bounty to the national treasury. Hand in hand here, we see military and church arms working together, neither of them in a way that has virtuous treatment of native populations in mind. And make no mistake, enslaving individuals and coercing and forcing them to convert to Christianity is clearly a sin. What's interesting though is that among the Portuguese slave trade, which we talked briefly about in the Congo for example, we don't have evidence of any significant Portuguese resistance to these ideas as being sinful or theologically problematic. However, this is not the case with Spanish work in Latin America. Admittedly, resistance was quite minimal, but we do actually have examples of theologians and political leaders who are trying to prevent some of the atrocious mistreatment of native populations. For example, consider some resistance among Dominicans, one particular branch of monks associated with the Catholic Church and whose notable members include theologians like Thomas Aquinas. You may remember us briefly treating this group in Historical Theology 1. Well, in 1511, we have an interesting example and an important example of Dominicans who put up resistance attempting to stop 
much of the slavery that was happening in the New World. Antonio de Montesinos, for example, argued that if you're using indigenous peoples as slaves, you are committing a mortal sin and are at risk of losing your salvation. Let me step back briefly and explain what a mortal sin is in Catholic theology. Catholic moral theology typically distinguishes between mortal and venial sins. This stems from the manuals that were given to confessors in the early Middle Ages. So individual Christians would come to the priest and they would practice confession and be given a task of penance. We've already talked about this some in the context of our justification unit. While there was some concern by higher church leaders that uh, Christians and priests might not be applying the same standards across the Christian realm. Someone who commits murder in one territory might be assigned far stricter consequences than someone in another territory, who, if they simply pray a few times, might be viewed as forgiven from the standpoint of the church. So these manuals were designed to standardize identification of sin and the theological and moral responses required in penance and other tasks. Mortal sins were those sins that were classified as the most extreme, which might undermine the merits required as a component of justification to the point that salvation might be lost. So when Montesinos is saying that indigenous peoples uh, being enslaved is a mortal sin, he is challenging in the highest level possible in a Catholic moral theology uh, that this practice is acceptable. Typically, the Dominican order and other monastic orders were fairly hierarchical. So, uh, de Montesinos would pass on his arguments through superiors, hoping that eventually the word would make it all the way to Rome. Loyasa, who is Antonio de Montesinos' superior, added an argument that mission is impossible if you are unjust. In other words, not only are you at risk of losing your own soul, but you will be ineffective at saving the souls of others. This should seem fairly straightforward to us today, um, though in practice we quite often couple various moral failings with evangelistic efforts, uh, perhaps without recognizing the contradiction. Same thing was the case in this instance. So many bad theological ideas and practices had found their way into Europe at this point, uh, not just in Catholics but in Protestants as well, that racism was far too easily accepted and the superiority of the European race uh, through appeal to such verses as we've talked about earlier, like uh, the disbursement of the Tower of Babel or the Curse of Ham. Uh, too many folks would appeal to this in a manner that would justify theologically what they were doing, that they didn't realize that enslaving peoples would not successfully bring about conversion. Loyasa tries to change this perspective, unfortunately, uh, without much success. So what response did these individuals meet from King Ferdinand II of Spain? Well, Ferdinand condemned the Dominican resistance by citing two things, primarily. Uh, he called the Dominican response a theological novelty, an innovation, which was contrary to prior teachings of the papacy. After all, papal bulls had donated the entire hemisphere to Spain, including ownership of the native populations. If the Dominicans were going against the Pope, then clearly they were wrong because the Pope held the keys to the church, 
as the successor on earth of Peter's ministry as the chief of apostles. Second, Ferdinand challenged the Dominican resistance on the basis of just war theory. Just war theory argued that under certain circumstances, the use of violence might be deemed as acceptable. In these cases, Ferdinand believed that the criteria of just war theory were being met. Though in terms of ethics, in my modern study of just, just war theory, I can't imagine how that could be the case in any sense of the word. Regardless, Ferdinand also appealed to legal precedent. Forced labor was legalized in the laws of Burgos, which said that all have a duty to work. In some places in the so-called New World, there were very sophisticated and advanced cultures with very urban and complex societies. But in other cases, the peoples encountered were fairly rural. Uh, they were not urbanized, um, and they were a little bit more migrant, which led to the racist conclusions and the prejudiced conclusions of Europeans that they were therefore lazy and not working, because the hunting and gathering that they participated in was far different from the sorts of work that was being done in Europe. So Ferdinand believed that he was enforcing good law by requiring people to work in the mines where previously they were unwilling to work. Theological and social context here uh, is an increasing emphasis on the vice of laziness. Laziness was thought to be a, a supreme uh, spiritual failing. And there was a gradual shift to a mercantile economy away from the more classical feudal economy. So the mercantile economy was in the very early stages of industrialization. And as industrialization happened, the average hours worked by a European increased significantly. So it is true that in comparison with many European contexts, there was more downtime or more uh, time for relaxation among native peoples. This was viewed by Europeans as laziness and as a vice, whereas it may in fact be evidence of a higher value of family and other cultural undertakings than simply the pursuit of profit. So Ferdinand and other Spaniards could argue that in forcing labor, they were actually helping to save indigenous peoples by leading them away from vice into virtue. Virtue, of course, being a component in our moral development that contributed toward justification. So those are the arguments made by Ferdinand in defense of this practice. This did not dissuade Dominicans from continuing to argue against Spanish practice. You may recall that we read Cardinal Cajetan and his theological response to Luther. Cajetan is viewed as one of the most gifted Catholic theologians of this time. Cajetan was also one of the superiors of the Dominican order, one of the top authorities there. So several major Dominicans appealed to Cajetan, who weighed in in this manner. Cajetan argued that just war can be waged against Muslims and against Jews who were not conforming to Christian practices within Christian territory. They are refusing to submit to the governmental expectations of their Christian leaders, and therefore uh, force can be used against them, because their failure to comply with the Christian religion may be harmful to other Christians around them. I won't defend that proposition, but note that Kajitan limits these acts within Christian territories. He prohibits 
such war against foreign peoples who have not been under the leadership of a Christian kingdom and who are not members of a predominantly Christian society. Added to this argument, uh, Francisco de Vitoria argues that natives cannot possibly understand or accept Spanish claims to ownership, so they can't be the subject of just war. You see, individuals like Ferdinand might argue that the natives are rebelling, for the papacy had given the native lands to the Spanish king. But never mind the language barrier, there's also the vast theological and cultural barrier there, where natives would not understand the Pope to have any authority, or even at times understand land as something that could be sectioned off and sold as property. That varied from civilization to civilization. So Vittoria argues that if they can't possibly understand what they're doing wrong, they can't be held accountable for it and thereby be subjected to war. Now notice in these instances uh, several things. First, Ferdinand's appeal to just war theory is critiqued. This war cannot be just because natives cannot understand and because they do not live within Christian territories. Second, though, notice what these challenges do not respond to, and that is the notion that native peoples are in fact inferior or have rightly been given by the Pope over to control of European powers. Now I'd like to talk a little bit more about a man named Bartholomew de las Casas. You may have heard of him. He's often viewed as the most radical supporter of indigenous rights. Bartholomew wrote an expose of the terrible treatment of Native Americans that was read in considerably large circles in Europe. In the midst of this argument, where he's trying to show what the actual atrocities look like, de las Casas advocates for reparations as a required penance. In other words, to make up for this sin, de las Casas argued that Europeans must pay back Native populations for both the harm that they have done and the property and wealth that they have taken. De Las Casas is actually successful in encouraging Emperor Charles V, who has political authority over Spain, even though he is directly the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, he ends up passing the so-called New Laws. These laws reject the hereditary right to encomiendas, so descendants will no longer automatically inherit the land of their parents. These laws reject forced labor and slavery of indigenous peoples, though they still require indigenous peoples to pay a tax to the Spanish government. And finally, these laws offer a very minimal affirmation of the rights of native peoples. Now, you might think that this therefore solves the problem, but there are several reasons why it does not. First, is that de las Casas actually advocates bringing in African slaves as an alternative to the mistreatment of indigenous peoples. You see, de las Casas appears to buy into some of the same racist ideology views Africans as cursed through the Hamaitic curse. He does not, however, believe that indigenous peoples of the Americas are cursed in this manner because he cannot clearly trace their lineage in that way. So, where de las Casas combats racism in one area, he actually reinforces it in another area. The second reason why the new laws are a failure is that they were not accepted uh, by many of the colonists in the New World. In fact, they were often met with violent resistance. For example, the Bishop of Leon, Antonio de Valdivizio, 
was actually killed by the governor's sons during the middle of a violent revolution. Similarly, the viceroy, so the political representative of Peru, was killed by his citizens who rebelled to allow for the continuation of forced labor and encomiento property rights. Eventually, this rebellion was put down. It's true that thousands of natives were freed from forced labor, so that's a positive result, but it's also true that due to the extensive revolutions, many frontier areas never actually implemented the new laws in order to avoid political unrest. So on the books, things had moved in a slightly positive direction for Native Americans, in a worse direction for Africans, but uh, in practice, this was not consistently or robustly implemented in most contexts. So what can we learn from this discussion of European colonial failings in the New World? There are a number of lessons here. For example, it is certainly the case that opposition to certain unjust policies and practices is not necessarily the same thing as overcoming uh, deeply ingrained racism and prejudice. Many of the individuals that we have discussed who have opposed the practices of Ferdinand uh, did so uh, without necessarily recognizing their own false sense of superiority as Europeans. Another lesson is that there is never a time when our eschatological hope for the return of Christ should prompt us to ignore issues of lasting justice. Yes, Christ may come tomorrow, but this does not mean that we are absolved from the moral responsibility of seeking to instantiate a just society that will meet the needs of two centuries from now. Another lesson from this, I believe, is that we must fully understand a culture before we diagnose it with sin. Conquistadors and missionaries were quick to label indigenous peoples as lazy because their style of work did not look like a European style of work. But in fact, this appears to be quite far from the truth. And as a result of this under misunderstanding, it was actually Europeans who were committing the terrible sins while they believed they were actually rescuing native peoples from sin. Unfortunately, this sort of misunderstanding of target cultures by missionaries continues today far too often and is one of the major challenges of missiology, the study of missions. How do we better equip people to share the gospel without having them go into a context and immediately condemn as evil that which they do not understand and that which by God's common grace might in fact be a virtue? Third, and finally, the incidents of colonization in Latin America in the 14 and 1500s should stand as a strong warning to our mixing of political and evangelistic ambitions. The thought here is that the political goals of Spain match the evangelistic goals of the Jesuits and Dominicans and larger Catholic Church, so they should work together. However, in practice, it was the political goals that won out and the evangelistic goals and the integrity of the church that suffered greatly. Far too often in today's world, we are tempted to ally political ambition with evangelistic hope, for example, in seeking maybe to gain control of the government in hopes that we can change the schools and evangelize more successfully through them. But there's a great risk here that we might in fact be compromising the church without accomplishing anything positive in the political realm. So, 
This is only a uh, tiny portion of the history of Christianity in Latin America, and it's focused on a very early stage of this history, particularly with the atrocities committed by a number of European settlers and theologians and conquistadors. There's much more to be said. If you're interested, I'd happily refer you to some books. But unfortunately for now, this concludes our time on the history of global Christianity, since this is a class that focuses far more on doctrine than it does on historical events and culture. Thanks for listening, and until next time, be well.